screen. Okay. Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your spirit will be with us and rule our hearts and minds so that all the meditations and considerations of our hearts will be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Pride divides. I, I need to say something before we begin because um, there was an error <clears throat> on my part. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> we have a church reading program, right? So when the first email was sent out um, for uh, those of us who are taking the pulpit, we were assigned <clears throat> certain passages that we can pick on. And apparently there was an error in the first email and attachment and uh, I did not subsequently uh, pay attention to the second and third emails, so I preached based on an incorrect schedule. So what you have this morning is that I'm speaking on 1 Corinthians chapter 4, whereas the reading program ends in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 on Friday. So we are looking ahead. So this is something new, and I will take a little bit of time to go over the uh, well, first few chapters of, of uh, First Corinthians, so that when you begin to read First Corinthians, um, hopefully that will help you to have some context, and, and we'll move on through the week. Um, so we have corrected that, and uh, Pastor called me out on Monday and said, "What to do? Ah, uh, know how many more days left? I can't. I've already prepared this for the past three weeks, and I, I'm not like Pastor. I told him I can't come up with a sermon in two days." <laughs> So he said, it's okay, I'll, I'll go on. So just to let you know that in case you are following, and I, I know there are some of you, or if not many of you, who are following in the reading, and you're saying, hey, what is this? This is not part of the reading program. It is not. It is this coming week's pro, uh, reading plan from First Corinthians chapter 2 to chapter 6. I have selected this as the topic, Pride Divides. And, and indeed it does in, in many ways. And if you <clears throat> turn to the front of your bulletin, you would see this uh, graphic. Um, for one, when one says, I'm Paul, and another says, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2, and 3, including chapter 4, which I'm going to uh, touch on, um, in generic terms, talk about the divisions in the church at Corinth. There, there were factions, there were groups that were calling themselves or priding themselves after Paul, Apollos, or even Cephas or Peter. And, and in, in the uh, first few chapters, when, when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he underlines some of the causes, and I've broken down these causes. Um, it has to do with the three M's. It has to do with the message itself. Not that Paul's message is incorrect, but the interpretation of the message of the gospel is wrong. 
or is not clear. And secondly, it has also a problem with the understanding of the ministry as well as the ministers, the, the leaders, the elders of the church. And finally, it has at the crux of the problem is the mindset or the thoughts and the way they think, of, which impacts the message, the ministries, the ministers. So they are all very connected that because of the incorrect mindset, <clears throat> then they fail to grasp the message correctly and the roles of the ministers, there is division in the church. And it ends in the second part of chapter 4 with Paul's exhortation to the church to mend their ways and to get things right. Last week, our pastor spoke on Romans, <clears throat> and I, I just want to bring this up because there, there is clearly a connection, and if you can even say a continuity between Romans chapter 12 and what I'm going to share with you this morning. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The, th the thinking was incorrect. And in this particular letter of Paul to the church of Corinth, again, he points out their thinking, their mindset is incorrect and thereby causing divisions. <clears throat> so a divisive mindset is the main problem faced by the church in Corinth. And Paul writes in verse 6 of chapter 4, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. So these things that Paul referenced to were what he wrote in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And in a nutshell, these things has to do with the divisions found in the church of Corinth, where groups <clears throat> of believers would align themselves, so to speak, with certain leaders, himself including. That's why they say, I am of Apollos, or I am of Paul, or I am a follower of Peter. So they, they come to, together with a particular following with allegiance and alignment to particular leaders. And if you read, and I, I did, I, I did some research, the groups were not only named after Paul and Apollos, which were obviously um, the, the, the fathers of their faith in the church of Corinth, but un, um, unspoken and unwritten in, the, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we know that there are other local leaders within the church of Corinth who also took upon himself groups of followers and they call themselves, we follow John or whatever, Iris or <laughs> whoever I see the name come to my mind, <laughs> I will just do it. So, so there are many factions and divisions within the church. So it is both a problem of the leaders who lead those small groups as well as the followers themselves who want to align themselves 
with these leaders. <clears throat> so Paul says, beware of divisions. And he says, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos. What's happening here is that Paul steps forward in his letter to the church and say that I have now taken this as an example upon myself. That's what he says. And he uses a lot of irony and sarcasm. So, uh, <clears throat> and Mary read for us, uh, you probably would think, why, why is Paul saying all this thing? I'm rich, you're poor, etc. There's a lot of irony. There's a lot of sarcasm here. So, do, you cannot interpret the following verses literally. In fact, a lot of times Paul is saying the exact opposite. And as we go through, I hope to be able to clarify when was Paul trying to be sarcastic and when did he uh, say things as it were. Okay? But here he applies himself to show up their pride, to show up their incorrect thinking or their wrong mindset using himself and Apollos as examples. So, if it is wrong to form divisions of factions after their names, right? And, and Paul very clearly tells them, you, we, Paul and Apollos, disapprove. We say it is wrong to have groups of people following us. And if Paul and Apollos, being the leaders of the church, say so, it implies that the followers themselves are no better and they should not follow after himself, Paul, nor Apollos, because he says that should not be. And furthermore, <clears throat> the local leaders of the church, <clears throat> the Johns and the Irises, they are the lesser teachers or the lesser leaders. If Paul says, don't use me as a group leader, it follows then that the lesser secondary leaders should not take it upon themselves to have followers as well. So that's the main point. Don't follow me, it should not be used. And among yourselves, don't follow your local leaders. We are one. We should not be factious in that sense. Another reason Paul applied himself and that of Apollos, their names in place of the actual names of those leaders in the local church is because he wants to avoid unnecessary offense or anger. Worse still, he doesn't want to be misunderstood as if coming across to put down certain leaders in the local church so that he himself can be the ultimate leader. You get what I'm trying to say? So he's not saying, he's not using his position as an apostle, a founding father of the church, to put down all other lesser teachers so that he can be the only person that everybody is following. Far from it. Paul reflects everything to Jesus. So that's why he applied himself. He used himself as an example to prevent unnecessary misunderstanding. Beware of going beyond. I think this is something we are very good at. We always out. We always go do more when it is not within the propriety for us to do so. So he says, I'm doing all this. I'm applying myself and that of Apollos. It's all for your benefit. This is to stem whatever 
resistance the people may have or in their thoughts that, oh, you're doing this for yourself. Paul says, no, it's for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. So in essence, the primary message is that we are doing this for your sake and the sake of your local leaders because divisions in the church would cause harm. It would hurt the church ultimately. So they they can learn. There are two points here. So Paul wants them to learn from him as their own examples, as life examples. Paul and Apollos are like what pastor says last week, living sacrifices. They live out their lives in sacrifice to the calling in which they have been called in the name of Jesus. And secondly, so that they can align their understanding with Paul's understanding. I I put a picture of this cartoon of two two girls playing volleyball. I I, I recently took back my role as a volleyball coach in in one of the local schools near my house, Convent Green Lane. And, And the thing I do with, with volleyball and I train the players is that I, I not only train them what to do, which is important enough, but I try very much to help them to understand why is it I want them to do whatever they are doing. So it's, it's not just the learning of skills, positions and tactics, but the understanding that is even more important so that they will be able to have a single understanding, a single strategy a single mindset, that they are one as a team. The worst thing any volleyball coach can tell you is a team of talented players, but they are all playing against one another, one to show up that they are better than their peers, and there's no unity. A kind of team like that will never win. So Paul is telling them, learn from us. Think like what we think, so that your incorrect mindset can be corrected. And, said, and he said, don't go beyond. Nothing more. Nothing less. My, 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 my small group would know because we talked about this nothing more, nothing less in the last couple of weeks. And, and last week, Pastor pointed out in Romans chapter 12, verse 3 that we not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment not to be super inflated, to go one, two, three more steps beyond what you're supposed to be thinking of. And if you do that, then you get all puffed up with pride. But neither to do the reverse, to be super deflated, which in last week's sermon, I like the way pastor says the example when visitors come and say, your children are so clever. And pastor says, no lah. They're so stupid, you know? The the false pride that comes into play. So in in this respect in the church of Corinth, Paul tells them clearly the problem here is not not the uh, super deflated ego, but it is the super inflated side of the coin that has been demonstrated in the church because they went beyond. They thought they were more than just believers. They they want to follow certain factions so that they have more power, more popularity. And Paul says, do not go beyond what is written. Beware of pride itself, that you will not be puffed up 
in being a follower. I'm trying to imagine, I'm, I was trying to find a graphic, what being puffed up means. So I, I, I googled puffed up, you know what I got? A poodle that has just gone through a bath and the, fat, the, the hair was all puffed up. I said, I couldn't put this down as a graphic. But the puffed up ego is like you are, your nose will probably be in the air and you're walking on air. You think you are much more than what you really are. So that, that's what's happening. And that's the word that Paul used to describe the church in Corinth in his letter. Do, so that you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. So the, the, the words that Paul used gives us a hint that it is not just following certain leaders that they're not supposed to follow in the first place, but there is a one-upsmanship. My leader is better than your leader. That, that kind of competition and even enmity that breeds in the ranks of the followers in Corinth. And Paul directs this at the two groups of people. He directs this at the followers as well as the teachers themselves. Now, if if a group of people come together and, and wave flags and, and say, yeah, 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 we are all Iris's followers. No, I think Iris would get puffed up. So many people, I didn't know y'all loved me, you know. I didn't know you all supported me so much. And Iris would get puffed up. I mean, I'm just using Iris as the example. The mother is staring at me. No, okay. <laughs> so, Paul, Paul does not want them to be puffed up in this way. Uh, and, and there is a, a, the other side of the coin of being puffed up, a flip side. And I, I put down there, uh, the, 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 I, I'm a football fan, right? So there's the Manchester City, there's a Tottenham Hotspur, and there's a Liverpool thing. Next Sunday, there will be the European Champions League finals between Tottenham and Liverpool. And the weeks leading up to it, you will see... Fanatical, fanatical is the, the long word for fans. Lah. Fans of one football group would not only praise their own team, but they will deride, they will say bad things about their opponents. And that is the flip side of the coin. So the intention of Paul is that, so Paul warns them that when they succumb to the temptation of pride, when they put on pride and take off humility, they will not only speak boastfully of one, of one teacher, which is in itself wrong and not welcome, but they will also speak disparagingly, critically against another. There will be words that are used that will hurt other people. And supporters and fans will come together becoming enemies and really divides the church. So Paul wrote to them, hoping to change, correct their mindset that there would be one. Okay, I will, I will use this as an example. So, um, on Friday, our small group met and we were, sh and, and Dr. Chin and Fake One were sharing of their trip to um, Lubok Antu. And in one of the long houses, at, at least that's what I understand, there appears to be a division among um, the Christians in that single longhouse, and there were three factions. There were three leaders, and they were not entirely on good terms with one another. So, the, so brothers and sisters, what I'm saying is that 
even in, in our own times, in our own church, even in East Malaysia, even here, even in churches around us, if we are not careful, factions such as this can be found in our church. And we may find ourselves as a follower of this group or that group or that's this person or that person. So beware of pride because it will divide and destroy the church. Paul addresses them through several ways. One of them is by arguing with them that their incorrect mindset is wrong and they need to change. And, and he, he does this in a very sarcastic way. So he turns on the sarcasm over here in verse 7. He says, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Who are you? What's so special about you? Everything you have, you have received. Why boast? So he, he, he's heavy on sarcasm in, in verse 7, and directing his admonishment, his scolding at both the teachers as well as the followers. It takes two hands to clap. If there is a teacher who is himself is puffed up and has pride and jealousy and wants to be popular and calls upon con the congregation to come, follow me, I know better, I have the secret, the other person doesn't. But if the followers don't follow, there's no division. So it takes both a leader who wants followers and followers who wants a leader that they can follow. Okay, so it takes both sides. <clears throat> so Paul tells them, argues with them that there is no reason. All you have is given to you. There's no justification at all of being proud. And, and I put down this graphic here and I put the word, I am great. And I just want to relate to you a story this happened 20 years ago when I was still working in Intel. Um, and sometimes, I, this colleague of mine happens to come from the Philippines. I, I know him by name and I worked with him, but I don't know him that well. He has a very funny name. So sometimes when we work and then we joke among ourselves, you know, in, in the lo I mean, locally, sometimes when, we, when people try to say things better, we, we say, what, you are great, ah? or you think you are great, you know? We, we, we do say that. And my friend says, yes, I'm great. Because his name, his legal name, is Great Ancheta, Filipino. So the only person that is great in our team is him. Because his name is great. <laughs> and he's the only person that can genuinely answer, yes, I'm great. <laughs> because that was his name. Okay? But we don't have that name. We shouldn't pride ourselves and puff, out, puff up ourselves to say that we are great or greater than the others. There's no reason, no justification. All that we have, all that we are, all that we do, which is good, is because of the free, gracious, and abundant giving of God. In fact, Paul goes on in the second letter of Corinthians to tell them, let he who boasts, boast of the law. That's the only legitimate boast that we can boast with. And you know, the problem with us is that it's 
we, we like to boast about ourselves, but when it comes to boasting of the Lord, we say, ha, ha, it's okay, like, let somebody else boast of the Lord. What's wrong with us? And Paul tells them, if you boast, if anyone should boast, boast in the Lord, boast in what our Lord has done for us, His grace, His might, His mercy. By sarcasm, again, it, it comes all over the place. Already, you have all you want. Already, you have become rich. You have begun to reign. And that without us. Some, some translation says, now you are full. Now you are rich. Now you have begun, be, became kings, as what was read to us by Mary. Kings. Now, if you look at the graphic at the bottom, I, I, I chose a, a picture. can't really see that well. It's a, a meal table, along in the old days with some candles. And on the table is laid food. Lots of food. Already, you are full. You already have food. Then the next level, already you have become rich. It's like a treasure chest, wooden chest with coins. It's like rich, riches. And then the third one, already you reign. Already you are a king, right? That's supposed to be a king. Uh, let me play this out with you. When, when a person is, is, is hungry, living day to day, doing whatever it takes to get food into the stomach for himself or for the family, your eyes would not look far beyond the corner or the ground because you are just looking to get food so that you won't die of hunger. So that's a very base level of even survival. But now Paul tells them, Already you are full. When a person is full, when there's more food than he can eat, when there's no more worries about the next meal or future meals, his eyes begin to lift up and see, can I get rich? And that's the second level. And once your coffers and bank accounts and properties and all your Riches are there. Your eyes begin to lift up even more. I have all the money I want. What I need now is power and influence. That's only achievable if you are a king or if you reign in some kind of a kingship. The CEO of a 500-strong uh, company, as what Pastor said last week, in seminar, taking a toothbrush and washing the toilet. That's the right mindset. But then Paul uses sarcasm. Already, now, you are already full, you are already rich, now you are already king. Now. So, again, sarcasm. I mean, Paul is really in between the lines. He's saying, really? You have arrived? And Paul says, I have myself not yet arrived. Already? <laughs> you think your race is already won? You think that you have attained the crowning glory in the Christian race? Really? Sarcasm. To tell them that they are wrong in puff up. And you think you are full, you are rich, 
you are king, you reign, and all without us. What an insult. I, some commentators put it here is the, the way that Paul writes. There's a lot of emotions. We think he personally, he's human after all, we think he personally felt an insult as well. It's as if you are the person who helped someone to... I know there are people who are in business over here. Let's say one of us helped a small group of workers to develop or to build their business, and they're doing well. But then when you come and visit them next time, they act as if you didn't do anything for them and they have already arrived. They, they won't even want to talk to you or make an appointment and see me next month. You know, that kind of thing. Wouldn't you be angry? Wouldn't you be, you know, insulted? That's possibly one of the feelings that Paul may have when he wrote, which also in a way kind of explains in a human way. We know that the Bible is... It is influenced by the Holy Spirit to, for Paul to write. But there's also a human element. And, 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 and many scholars have also said that possibly could be the reason when Paul writes, he pours in his words as well as the sarcasm that comes in. You know, sometimes when we argue with someone, when someone says, I'm better, then you, when, we, when, when you don't have any more words to say, you resort, resort to sarcasm. Okay, la, okay, la, you are great. La, I'm not great. La. You know, we, we talk like that. It's exactly what's unfolding before us as we read these verses. Paul resorts to sarcasm. He's actually saying the opposite. And then the second part of verse 8 says, Oh, how I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. Albert Barnes, an American theologian, I searched through a number of commentary, and I, I like the one he has. And, and let me quote and read what he wrote. He says this, Paul here drops the irony. He stops being ironical in his writing and addresses them in a sober, earnest manner. It is the expression of a wish that they were as truly happy and blessed as they thought themselves to be, I wish that you were so abundant in all spiritual improvements that uh, I wish that you had made such advances spiritually that you could be represented as full, as rich, as princes, needing nothing, so that when I, Paul, come, I might have nothing to do but to partake of your joy. In two sentences, he flips from deep, heavy sarcasm to an appeal from his heart. You are rich. You are full. You are a king. Sarcastically against them. Then in the next breath, so to speak, he says, Oh, I wish you really, in a spiritual way, in a mature way, having understood the secrets of the gospel. Even though physically you are poor, physically you are hungry, but spiritually you are full, you are rich, and we reign as prince and princess in God's kingdom. Oh, how I wish 
it really is that. Then I can come with you and rejoice with you. By showing them God's way. Verse 9, For it seems to me that God has put us as apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. I, I couldn't make head or tail. What, what is Paul trying to say? I had to do a little bit of reading, and, 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 and here's what I found. This is uh, from a, a, a Bible scholar. His name is Seneca. This is his writing. He said this, Historically, gladiators, gladiators are actually captured uh, slaves when, when Rome conquered lands. They captured able-bodied men, trained them to be gladiators, and then let them fight against one another for the spectacle, for, to entertain the Roman citizens and the king, of course. So historically, gladiators at the front of the procession. So you can imagine a long line of fighters. And in the front of the procession, those who are in front, they will, of course, fight first. And usually this is in the morning. They are, they are, the arena is filled up and it goes on for the whole day. The killing goes on in the whole morning until the afternoon. So, but those in the front will go into the arena in the morning, armed, and be given a chance to escape with their lives after fighting with other gladiators or wild beasts. So what does it mean? If you are in the front of the line, if I win or I don't get killed, I can be free. And this is done to make them fight bolder because the psychology is this. If, if I win, I will die. If I lose, I will die. What's the point of fighting? You know? But if there is an incentive, and the incentive is your life, that if you can win, you can live. So that helped the gladiators to really fight for their lives, even among friends or even brothers and sisters who were caught and thrown in because the prize is a chance to live. So those in the front of the line have this chance. If they win, if the, if the lion doesn't eat them, then they can be let go. They, they are free to escape. But in the afternoon, towards the end of the line, the gladiators at the end of the line will have to fight because even when they survive, they cannot escape. They will be caught again and recycled the next day until they die because they are condemned to die. And Paul uses this because he knows what is happening. And the readers themselves know this is what's, what typically is happening in the Roman amphitheatre. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. They are appointed to die. Paul knows that he will die. And yet, he goes on. And therefore, the lesson here by showing God's way is that the church may transform their thinking, change their thinking from one upsmanship to be united as a church. Second part of verse 9 says, or Paul says, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to the angels as well as to human beings. They are there for the whole world to see, to be slaughtered, to be killed. 
But here, Paul reverts to irony in between the lines. What he actually is saying to the church in Corinth is this. He warns them, if the teachers and believers do not correct their mindset and address and put off pride, they themselves would be made a spectacle for all their folly, for all their pettiness, and for all their waywardness in the faith. They would be made a spectacle. And come to think of it, we read in the, the papers and the multimedias of some, some personalities, some people, some groups of people doing things so foolishly that they have become a spectacle, a laughing stock. I won't mention names. Pride comes before any fall. And so Paul wants to address them. We, your spiritual fathers, are paraded at the end of the procession. And here you are trying to say, I'm better, I'm here. He's showing them God's way. And by contrast, finally, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. It's, it's like we all are, in, when we talk to our, peop, our friends or our friends or enemies, nothing else can, we ran out of argument already. Okay, 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 you are good, I'm bad. You know, we, we say these type of things with a lot of emotion, but actually we mean to say you are bad. It's like the last act of your argument already. You revert to sarcasm. And Paul here reverts again to sarcasm. And the Cambridge English Dictionary defines sarcasm or irony or sarcasm as this. The use of words that have the opposite in what you mean. Really the opposite. So in essence, Paul is rebuking the teachers and the believers of the church and calling them to be fools, but not fools for Christ. Weak distorted in their Christian understanding and dishonoured if they do not repent and transform their mindset and love for pride and divisions. Finally, by example, to this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags and brutally treated. We are homeless. So Paul here drops the irony again. So you have to shift... This sentence is ironical. This sentence is sarcasm. This one is true. You know, to get the whole gist of what he's saying. And he gives a serious summary of his actual suffering, his trials, since he has met Jesus in the road to Emmaus. Right? So this is all that he continues to face day by day to this very hour. Hungry, thirsty, in rags, brutally treated, homeless. And this is in stark contrast with the teachers and the followers who think and act as if they are full, rich, and kings. The last three verses, 11, 12, 13, and I'll stop there, makes it clear that pride has no place in the lives of Christians, regardless of whether you are a teacher, a leader, or a disciple. 12 and 13, we work hard with our hands, we are cursed, but when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth. 
the garbage of the world right up to this moment. He uses very, very graphic words. The scum of the earth. The garbage of the world. As an example. It resonates with what pastor spoke with us last week on Romans chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do, do not curse. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Just go through this applications. It's in your notes. So are we aware of any Pauls or Apollos in our churches today? How should we act? How should we behave so that we do not encourage this kind of division? You can use this if you, when you meet in your small groups or even by yourselves to introspect, to check ourselves and our church. As disciples, our ongoing challenge is to conquer pride in our lives and to live as a living sacrifice in praise and glory for Christ and Christ alone. What lessons can we learn from this and apply towards this end? Finally, just to share something which inspired me, I've shared before with other people. A wise man chooses his destination and accepts the path. A foolish man chooses his path and accepts his destination. We should be wise in Christ. We should choose our destination in Christ and accept our path, even if the path leads us to humility, servanthood, and in Paul and many of the disciples' case, to death. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to consider your word and your spirit to apply what we have learned into our lives. We ask that you would purge us, clean us from pride, and that we may look at you as your disciples to follow after your footsteps. That we can look at Paul your faithful servant and what he has to go through and take lessons from it. We thank you, Lord, for your word that has been recorded and preserved for us through the ages. We ask your spirit who himself inspired Paul will inspire us in our understanding to the end that, Lord, we may not be accused by your spirit as being prideful, but, Lord, that we may find humility in our heart of hearts and to live our lives to the praise and glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.